Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All righty, everybody, it is that time to pick up where we left off. All right, happy church. Let's settle down and settle in to the word of the Lord here in Matthew chapter 3, spilling over into Matthew chapter 4, two beautiful scenarios to look at as the Lord begins his public ministry this morning here in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we always acknowledge that the Word of God is just that, the Word from heaven. God breathed words to save our souls. God, we acknowledge that none of this has any source from man or, or this planet at all. But all comes down from our Father in heaven, and it has power to change us, power to save us, power to heal us. We lay ourselves prostrate before the living, breathing word of God for it to do its work in our wicked hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's often pointed out that in the Bible, when God makes a move, his enemy likes to counter. And God advances, the enemy pushes back. And no wonder that's what the name Satan means, adversary, enemy. And it's precisely this that we're going to take a look at this morning here in Matthew chapter 3. And as I said, spilling over into chapter 4, as we're introduced to Jesus as an adult for the very first time. He is 30 years old here. And it is his inauguration of his ministry, his baptism in the Jordan. And two things will happen. We will see and hear the approval from heaven uh, in Uh, with the start of Jesus' ministry, a voice from heaven on high. And in the very next sentence, we will hear the hiss from hell, the opposition of the evil one. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee, specifically Nazareth, which is in Galilee, to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, hey, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It's proper and fitting for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, which was a good thing. (laughs) Verse 16 
as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if or since you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And so... For our consideration this morning, uh, the chapter divide there is unfortunate because Jesus' baptism and his subsequent testing is really meant to be seen and understood as a whole, together as a unit, the baptism and then the battle. And so let's um, walk through these two back-to-back scenarios which took place there in the Judean desert. Uh, We will, first of all, two points, two different stories here blended together as one. We'll hear the voice from on high, the majestic voice from heaven in chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17, as the Son of God is baptized. And then our second point, we will hear the hiss from hell, if you will. The Son will be tested by the adversary and prevail, and that is chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. So let's dive in first, get situated here, and prepare ourselves to hear the audible voice of God. Man, I want to hear what that sounded like. Maybe we'll get a chance in heaven. You know, eternity's a long time. We've got to be doing stuff, right? And maybe part of that is getting to see and hear what we've been reading about all of our lives. And so we dive in here, and you see in your text here, verse 13, Jesus comes from Nazareth, where he's just spent 25 years being a carpenter and much 
obscurity. And though when he turns 30, he comes on his own willingly. Nobody forces him. Nobody takes the life of the Son of God. This is the plan. He comes from Nazareth down south 70 miles to the Jordan in the desert place where John is baptizing. And John is nervous, isn't he? He's a little nervous as the Son of God wades out into waist-high waters. We're privy to a little debate that goes on uh, there in the waters. And John is like, um, shouldn't this be the other way around? Uh, shouldn't uh, you be baptizing me? That would seem more appropriate. John is a sinner. He's already described the one who was coming after him as more worthy and noble and majestic and, and a life-giving spirit who baptizes with fire and life and reconnects us to God. And now that one comes into the waters. And John is like, I need to be baptized with spirit and fire. You don't need to be baptized with water for repentance. Come on. And so John has a few problems with this. And so John, along with anyone who knows Jesus, who, quote, in Matthew chapter 2, when they returned to Nazareth from Egypt, Jesus was five. And the last thing we heard was Jesus began to grow in wisdom and in holiness and in stature and with favor with God and with man. So why would he be wading into the waters of baptism, taking his place in queue with tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves and murderers, and he's in the line as well, the sinless one. John's got a little bit of a problem with that, and John has some inside information that's working against him right now because he was raised by parents who have a heavenly vision and both his mom, John's mom and dad, both know who Jesus is in the reality of his identity, don't they? Don't you remember when Elizabeth comes pregnant six months before uh, Mary and Mary comes for a visit, I should say, and, and when they meet together, she says, wow, how am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord should come to me. So she knows because her husband was doing his priestly duties when an angel who stands in God's presence comes to John's father and tells him all about this miraculous birth and this, this wonderful God-ordained ministry that John the Baptist would have. And when John is born, dad... Zechariah says, bursts out into prophetic praise and says, you will be called a prophet of the most high God and you will prepare the way for the Lord. So they both know that this is the incarnation, the Old Testament promise that said he would come as mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. They know, John knows, and he's wondering why does the Lord of glory line up in a baptism for repentance with sinners? Shouldn't it be the other way around? And Jesus' response in verse 15, 
kind of reminds me of what uh, he'll tell Peter three and a half years down the road when Jesus wants to <laughs> baptize Peter's feet, as it were, wash Peter's feet. And the disparity of that really causes a similar shock. And uh, certainly Peter feels it was out of place and, and says, no way, that not in a hundred years am I going to let you do this. And then Jesus says this, just go along with this for now. You don't understand what I'm doing in the moment, but later you will. And this is the same kind of thing he's going to do with John. You don't get it now. It doesn't make sense to you now what God is doing right now, but I'd like you to just stop complaining about it and do it and trust me. And later it'll all make sense to you. And it sounds to me by your reaction that this is just not an attack he takes with John the Baptist and Peter. He takes it with us as well. He just says, look, we're like, well, how could that be? Why would you want me to do that? How could you possibly want me to say this in this situation? And he says, listen, you don't get it now. You don't understand it now. But I've got a reason for it. Do it. Trust me. And later you'll go, ah, oh, that was the right thing to do and say. And that's what's going on here. He's saying, I'm doing something that surpasses your current pay grade, John. <laughs> Just submit and do what I'm asking. It's fitting or proper to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you know what the Greek word righteousness means, you'll get a feeling of what, why our Lord, the sinless one, needs and requires baptism to fulfill all righteousness. The word righteousness means right with God, to be made right with God. I have to do this so that everyone and that all people can be made right with God. So the sinless one goes into the waters of baptism, confessing sins not of his own, but of ours that will be placed on him, the sin bearer. Isaiah 53 prophesies of the Messiah that he would be a suffering servant, a servant of God to bear our sins. The punishment that brings us peace is upon him. By his stripes on his back, we are healed. Through his death, we have payment of our sins because Jesus' job is to get in that water and soak up the defilement of this world. And he goes about his ministry breaking Jewish rules and defiling himself, the undefiled God, touching dead bodies, becoming unclean, touching a leper, becoming unclean. And so this sponge takes the sins of the world and the defilement of us and is dipped in it, baptized in it, stained in it, and he carries that to the cross on his sinless body and says, take it out on me. Strike down your wrath. Judge every last sin. Condemn it all on me. And he pours out his wrath on the sin bearer, the one who entered the waters and confessed sins that he never committed, but in love. He comes as the sinless one. And, and the reason why God the Father has to say, oh, by the way, <laughs> he had no sins of his own to confess, is because that qualifies him 
How can one sinner bail out another sinner? We have to be bought and paid for with somebody with some moral equity, with some moral ability and funds in the moral tank and account. And so he has the right to lay down his sinless life in exchange with the sinners. And so that is why, John, I need to be baptized, not for my sins, but for yours. And when he even comes up out of the water with the intention to take the sins on his own body and pay for them, your verse says heaven was open. Mark has it better. The word is to be split in two, torn open. Heaven is now available. It was shut from Genesis chapter 3 when we were kicked out of paradise, barred with a flaming sword of going back into a closed heaven. And now the uh, gospel's been coming at us saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning <laughs> the kingdom of heaven's gates are opening wide. Why? For the very first time, they can be torn open. In the, it's a violent word. It means someone of passion that God, God is doing something, tearing it down through his own broken body that will be torn in two. Of course, there'll be another tearing, won't there? And this tearing of heaven is, is literally kind of fulfilled later in a physical manifestation in the temple. It says Jesus died, he breathed his last and yielded his spirit. Next verse, and the veil in the temple that separated unholy man and sinful man from a holy God was torn in two, same Greek word as the heavens torn open, the veil in the temple when Jesus pays for our sins and says it's finished, that temple gets, that, temp, that veil in that temple gets torn in two from top to bottom, signifying who's doing the tearing. And let me just tell you this. That do not picture some flimsy chiffon thing, lacy thing in the temple. It was heavy. It required 300 priests to manipulate it, to clean it, to repair it. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick, made of 70 squares. This is the, the symbol that says your sins have hidden his face from you, have barred your entrance back into heaven. And now heaven is torn open at the declaration that the sinless one will become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The majestic holy word of God, the whole thing dovetails like this beautiful narrative from the beginning. Paradise lost. Savior comes into the world to repair, to reconcile the world by taking on our sins and carrying them to the cross and doing away with them forever. Therefore, when that temple curtain is torn, God is saying, whoever you are, whatever you've done, are you the worst sinner in the entire world that ever breathed the air of this life? 
come in because Jesus became that wretched sin and his body was torn asunder and through the tearing of the body, the temple of the, the, of the Holy One, we enter now into uh, his presence. He says, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace and find your mercy in your time of need because you're welcome. He sees no stain on you because Jesus was stained by your sins and your sins have been judged and removed. And that's the gospel. And so, yeah, so there's going to be a light show. And of course, there's going to be a voice from heaven. Why in your verses? Because God doesn't want anybody to miss out. That's why he sends stars as a birth announcement over uh, Bethlehem. That's why he lights up the sky with an angelic choir. Nobody missed this. And the same thing at the baptism. That's what he does at the baptism. And then the point of whatever was going on with the light and the dove thing, Luke says, the dove descends in bodily form. That means this isn't a vision. This isn't kind of like a dove. It was this beautiful anointed dove, this bird that, that lands upon him and lights and the lights coming through those the, the, the darkened skies and then a voice from heaven. You can't miss it. If you had a mistaken idea, you started gossiping, oh, I wonder what the, you know, Mr. Growing in Wisdom and Stature over there in Nazareth, well, he's in line with next to Mary Magdalene. You know, after that, the dove and the voice, you're not talking smack anymore about the Son of God, amen? Sorry if I just used the colloquial language there, but that's what came to mind. Yes, indeed. And so that, my friend, is why the Son of God needs to be baptized so that you can be saved. Let's move on. Now, as soon as he was baptized and that voice came and the light, the dove and kerpow, <laughs> He went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending uh, like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I, have loved, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And the thing about this really is, is that God wants to make sure that everybody knows that there's no problem with him. He has no sins to pay for. And, and one thing that gets overlooked as far as miracles go, is, is that what was it like being around perfect humanity? Perfect. Perfect attitude, perfect comments, perfect words, perfect actions, perfect non-actions. What was that like? Everybody could tell that he was supernatural just by living around him. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And as soon as the evil one hears this message, temptation number one is on its way. And so let's take a look at that. Then Jesus is led just a little further up into the hills, right near there, into the desert deeper, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry, starving, and the tempter comes to him and starts to tempt 
And from God's point of view, God tests us. It's the same word with a different nuance. The devil is trying to tempt and to cause us to be destroyed. And so we've heard the majestic voice on high. We're in point two now with this testing as it were, now the, de- the deceptive hiss from below. We've heard the majestic voice on high. And isn't that how it goes? It's unbelievable. There's not, there's not even a, a, a verse in between. The, the voice from heaven and the next verse and the voice from hell. And do you know that's what it's like in this train wreck of a, of a fallen world, in a cursed world? That's what it's like. Wisdom and folly shouting out, Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 10. Where? From the same corner. Everybody folly shouting out, turn in here, turn in here. All you simple ones, turn in here. Ruin your life. It's so right there. Just turn, turn right. Put on your blinker. Come on in. And right next to her, wisdom is calling out. Wisdom to all who want to be wise. Turn in here. That's what it's like. It's like good and evil right here, always together. You know, even uh, Peter is used by the heavenly voice there in Matthew 16. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And and Jesus says, man, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my father, you just heard the voice from on high. Six verses later, he says, hey, Peter, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And Peter says, oh, no, God forbid, there must be another way. Lord, let's think of another way. This is never going to happen to you. And Jesus is touched and fires back to the face of Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking the way God thinks. You have in mind the things of man. And so the voice of the father, six little verses later, the voice of the servant always vying for control of our mouths and our minds, our hearts and our lives. But there's a day coming when a trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. We will be changed, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, in a moment, in a blink of an eye, and our corruptible will become incorruptible. And no more voices, no more whispers, no more evil desires within. Now, Jesus Christ did not have a sinful nature. He is able to be tempted from without. He is not dragged off and enticed by his own inner evil struggles like we are, James chapter 1. No. Just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created in moral perfection without a sin nature. They were tempted from without. The angels, a third of them fell. They were created morally perfect. They were tempted from without. Jesus Christ, as the sinless son of God, is tempted from without. He's still tempted, but he does not have a sinful nature. And so we get a look here. Let me explain something that's going on with this temptation theologically that will help you appreciate 
this whole scenario so much more. Oh, there's a test going on, but you don't even know about this. Listen, Jesus called the second Adam. And what's going on here is God, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the new man, is saying, I want to represent them, the human beings. They have Adam, and now there's the second Adam. What he wants is a redo. He wants a rematch. I'm the new version. I'm the seed of the woman. I am the the one born to conquer you. I am the second man. If everybody's connected to Adam, the man of the earth, they will die. And then God says, there's a second, there's a do-over. There's the second man. He's called Christ Jesus. And if anybody's connected to him, he will live. So the second man is going to go back, not in a lush garden, but more fittingly where sin got us into a barren wilderness where sidewinders and scorpions live. And he's going to duke it out with the same servant to reclaim us. He must pass the test this time and not fail. All in Adam die. All who want to jump ship from Adam number one to Adam number two will have life. This is what's going on there. And so the first temptation there, number 40, always means testing in the Bible and fasting for serious time of thinking and prayer, and that was a pretty serious time for our Lord to go head-to-head as a man with the devil. Well, Jesus isn't dipping into his divine account. He never stops being God, but he's doing this as a man submitted to the Father, and as a man, he is hungry. He's 100% man. Yes, 100% God as well. And so what Satan does here in verse 3, he says, you're starving to death. Does that seem right for the Son of God? Since you're God's own son, simply make bread from these stones. What's the sin about that? Use your divine attributes to please yourself, to take care of your own needs. Well, you know, one person said this, the worst and most insidious temptations are the ones that you can easily justify with human thinking or worldly logic. You know, those are the worst kinds. I mean, if you, you think about, you know, he's starving, he's hungry, he's the son of God, he's hungry, he wants something, he's got power, he can make, he can make bread out of the stones. What's wrong with that? The problem is the prompt is coming from the devil to do it. And... To use his power for himself is not part of the God-ordained mission. So in that, he would be sinning. But that's what he does with us, people. That's what he does. Listen, uh, Spurgeon says about this being tempted, you know, he says, but let us do what we will. We shall all still be tempted. God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without temptation too sin. And so we pay attention to how he works. And he works by getting you to say, what would be wrong with this? This is human understanding. First of all, the world accepts it. The world's okay with it. So, you know, what? where's the sin in it? That's what he gets you to just to, to, to reason. Well, they had it coming. Or if she never did this, then that would never have happened. 
or a marriage where there's needs are not being met. So therefore, uh, <laughs> no, you see, if you can justify it, do not justify with your mind what your heart condemns and what scripture tells us to avoid. And so Satan invites Jesus to reflect on his sonship and surely this entitles you to use your power to satisfy your own needs. And so no, Jesus answers with what? Some new revelation, uh, you know, some new power. He just says something uh, totally different. No, he goes back to what? The Old Testament with the new gospel today tells you all, let's do away with the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ went tempted by the devil as modeling for his people how to refute temptation and to resist the devil. He goes where? He goes to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, three times. And you're being told, ah, the Old Testament, unhitch it, and who cares, just pay attention to Jesus and cut and paste and all of this. Do not throw out what Jesus finds as a treasure to do battle with the spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly realms, my Word indeed. And who do you think's behind getting us to, to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? The one who was slayed by the Old Testament by Jesus himself using Deuteronomy. Of course he hates Deuteronomy. <laughs> Doesn't it make sense? All right. So he, he goes to Deuteronomy 8, note takers, verse 3. And here's Jesus' takeaway. There's something more important going on here than food. It's obeying God's word. More important than human logic and human longings is doing the will of God. That's it. That's it. Nothing before the will of God no matter how you can justify it or no matter who's doing it. Nothing before the will of God. Nothing contrary to God's will. He's not going to say he can't use supernatural intervention. He's going to let angels minister to him. You know they're going to bring on him some nourishment. He's going to accept that because it's the Father's timing. And it's right. And he knew if he resisted the devil and submitted to God, that afterwards, God would provide supernaturally what he needed. And in that regard, there was no sinning, you see. So round two is interesting. The devil ups his game a little bit. The second test there, starting five through seven. And he stands up on top of the temple. This is such a mystery, of course. And he tries it again. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down because you know what? You quoted scripture. You quoted from the Old Testament. Guess what? I can quote the scriptures too, Jesus. So if you're going to trust God, and here's Satan's point. Okay, let's track with you. You want to trust God to provide your needs. Got it. Check. Let's let him provide this need, albeit forced. You jump, right? You create a need. God will, and let, and since Jesus, you're a man of the word, you're always pulling out scriptures. Guess what? There's a scripture for this action too. 
Psalm 91, isn't it one of your favorite psalms, Jesus? Where the angels will not allow you to fall and hurt yourself. You won't even stub your toe. So let's do this. You know, you pull a stunt like that. Oh, you'll win everybody's adoration. Everybody be like, whoa, he is who he says he is. Only it's at the devil's prompt. Throw yourself down. One writer said this. Isn't it the same misguided trust to intentionally leap off the sacred ledge of our temple of the Holy Spirit and cast ourselves down into greed and lust and lying, assuring ourselves by the scriptures that when we fall into sin by our own doing, that he will forgive and forget and restore. This kind of thinking comes from the devil. This is a thing. So if he can't get you to do the deed, by saying, check out the world, the world is okay, or justify it with your human logic, he'll get you to twist the scriptures, twisting and perverting the scriptures, which he did here with Psalm 91, is one of the devil's fortes. And it's to the delight of every carnal Christian who wishes to sin with impunity by quoting a scripture. And you got that all the time. Oh, the alcoholic who will run to all the wine scriptures. There are wine scriptures everywhere. He tells Timothy, stop with the water. Use a little wine. But you don't tell that to an alcoholic unless you're Satan. And Satan will tell you, you know, wine gladdens the heart of man. It does if you're not an alcoholic. You see, and oh, I've had so many people tell me what they've done, which is the height of folly, and pull out and drag a few scriptures there to say, well, look at what the scripture's saying on this friend. The scripture is not validating that behavior or that course of action. And so he is busy. He knows his Bible, and he knows how to twist it, like a Romanian gymnast, he'll contort. <laughs> I can't be held responsible for every little example that pops into my head. I just pictured something all twisted up, and I just saw a Romanian gymnast. <laughs> all right, so mark that on the tape, where to cut snip, snip, all right. Yeah, so don't fall for that. Here's, here's what he's saying. So Satan comes up with the scripture. Hey, here's a good idea. It's written at Jesus' counters with another scripture. It's also written that we don't test God. We don't presume upon him. We don't put ourselves in uh, precarious situations because, oh, we know we've got a good God and he'll work out even this for my good. So I'm going to go ahead and have the affair. You don't say that out loud, but your heart tells you it's okay. You can come back. Do the deed. For it is written. You know what? You may get your forgiveness if you're saved, but you're going to get a lot 
more than you bargained for, along with your forgiveness. Guess what? The thief on the cross, he is forgiven. Guess what? He has to die on the cross still as a consequence. So beware. Let's finish up with this last round because he ratches it up a bit here. So the devil's not done. And he takes him to a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I have a proposition for you. So here we go. The devil cuts to the chase here. And, and, and he's really kind of almost being honest, you know, in a dishonest way, of course. Uh, here's what I'm really after. I just want to tell you what I'm after. We both know who you are. So I, I can suspend the if you're the son of God thing because I know the angels know, you know, right? So let's just cut to the chase. Here's what I want. I want you, the son of God, to bow before me because this is all I've ever wanted. This is what turned me, Lucifer, into the devil. Back in Isaiah 14, talks about wanting to raise his throne above the throne of God to sit where only God, to sit where only God sits, to be the object of, of our worship. That's what he wants. So he just says, look, look, let's cut to the chase. I've got something to give you. And he did. Legally, theologically, biblically, Satan had something, a legal right. When he says, I can give this to you, Luke tells us this. He says, all this has been given to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. And he's right because the Bible speaks of it. The Bible says in Genesis chapter three, because we who were given dominion of the earth by God, he rest, the devil wrestled it out of our hands when we bowed the knee to him. And he inherited this sin-cursed earth. And that is why the Bible calls him in the New Testament the God of this world, the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, lowercase God of this world. Uh, Paul calls him in Ephesians chapter 2 the prince of the power of the air. And if you're not convinced that he has legal authority on this earth, Jesus says in John 12 calls him the ruler of this world. God is sovereign. God's got a point to the whole thing. God is orchestrating. But look around at the world. This is not the work of the Father. This is the work of the adversary. Hum <laughs> Man's inhumanity to man, the corruption, the chaos, the fires, the random deaths, the sinkholes, the tsunamis, the diseases, the sin, the corruption, the wrong is right, the right is wrong, the perversion that's applauded. This is what it says. He is the ruler of this world. And so the ruler of this world says, by the way, I've got the deed to the earth. And think of all the good you can do if I legally pass it to you, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. You've got all the resources of the earth. You've got all the people back. I'll give you the people because they're mine. And they are. They're under his sway. They're under his power. I'll give you the people, the resources, the planet back under one condition. Bow the knee. And it's all yours. 
You don't have to go to that rugged cross after all. And Jesus looks at him and says, away from me. For it is written, there's one God, and we bow and serve him alone. And you you see what happens? He resists. He submitted to the Father. He resists, and the devil flees. That's your promise every single time. There's no temptation that's ever seized you that everybody else has struggled with. And God is faithful with the temptation to deliver you every single time, not give you more than you can bear. But with the temptation, he promises to provide a way of escape. As you submit yourself to God, resist him, and use the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you're going to use the word of God like Jesus, you've got to know the word of God. You've got to know where those verses are because, listen, every temptation to sin is a lie. And when you go to the word of truth, it's what bursts the deceptive bubble. Not only that, not only will it clear your brain, it will empower your being. You see, you're not just quoting some philosophy or something you read on Pinterest, (laughs) all right? You're quoting the living, active weapon. Jesus calls it a weapon. And when you call on that because you're wanting to do the wrong thing, and we all do. We all want to do the wrong thing. It doesn't take much. Uh, one guy was saying, the devil made him do this, the devil made him do that. I said, dude, you've got enough sin in you. You don't need any help. <laughs> Stop giving the devil glory. <laughs> I mean, there are times when he does come in, but we've got enough terrible evil within us. The heart is wicked beyond all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? So just a little tickle here, a little this, a little prompt there, a little offense, a little problem, a little not getting what you want, and boom, you're ready to go. And, and in that moment, if you reach for the sword instead of going with it and being a pacifist and a punching bag, and letting these little demonic creatures gnaw on you and hang off of you. And you, you're like, oh, go away. <laughs> go away. Oh, yeah, like, like the devil's going to run from you when you're going, oh, go away. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop doing that now. <laughs> I promise you, you pull out the, what are they called, the life savers or whatever they're, the you know, you, (laughs) I changed one awkward moment for another, all right, you pull out the word of God with intention, and you start submitting to God, resisting the devil, and using that thing with intensity, and start plunging it, oh man, you, if you're gonna uh, get out of the rut, you're gonna stop doing the thing you've been doing, that's robbing you and sapping you of joy, blessing, productivity, your marriage, your marriages. <laughs> Start to use the word of God and you'll flourish your despair, your anxiety. Turn to the word of God. Jesus is modeling for us. And the word of God will never fail. Let's pray together.
Father God, we look to you. We thank you for these two scenarios, your beautiful baptism and this wonderful battle which you prevail, speaking so many good things about who you are and who we are in you. Help us to hide your word in our hearts so that in the moment of need we can pull out these truths and be delivered in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.